Welcome to this week's episode of the North Bible Church Podcast. Now, let's join our pastor as we open God's Word together. All right, thank you, Wes. Good morning, everybody. Great to see all of you here this morning. Hope you had a great week. Uh, Just curious, how many of you guys are watching the the Suns games? Are you guys following the Suns right now? Okay, so most of us, that's, that's good. Uh, I don't like to talk necessarily about sports a lot because I realize it's not always appropriate here on Sunday mornings and most people don't care. But I think the Suns are kind of different, especially for this town. The Suns are more than sports. They kind of bring the city together because they're like our original sports franchise. They've been here forever. And, uh, and they also bring together like people who aren't sports fans to watch the game, especially during a time like this when they're making a run to the finals, something they haven't done in like 30 years. And so it's exciting. I just, I just mentioned that because we were, we were watching it together last night as a family and it occurred to me that my 14-year-old daughter was actually sitting on the couch hanging out with us, which, was a, which is a minor miracle, right? She doesn't, first of all, she doesn't watch sports at all. Secondly, I can't remember the last time she actually sat on the couch with her parents for any amount of time and actually wanted to hang out with us, so it kind of brought us together. My son's watching the game, and he turns over to, to our daughter, and he says, do you even know what team is, is our team? Do you know what team is the Suns? If you're watching the game last night, the Suns were wearing the bright orange uniforms, and so there was no mistaking who the Suns were, and my son, my son was kind of trolling her a little bit at the same time, but it was, uh, it was pretty funny. So anyway, I, I hope you've had a good week. I hope you're enjoying that run. That's something that has been exciting for our family to follow and, uh, and it's really fun to, to, to be a part of that uh, at this time, you know, at this time of year. So, um, so we are continuing this morning, though, as we gather this morning to open up God's Word together. We are continuing uh, in the book of Ephesians. This is a series that we have now been in for several weeks. I think one of the things that's exciting about where we're at right now, we started it last week, but we started into the second half of the book of Ephesians. And as I mentioned last week, there is kind of a nice division that happens here in the book of Ephesians. There's six chapters. The first three are really focused on kind of hitting on these uh, theological understanding of what God has done for us in the gospel of Jesus, kind of building this aspect of what it means for every spiritual blessing to be ours in Christ Jesus. And in that, in that way, Paul talks a little bit about how we live, but more it's just about our belief and the wonderful aspect of what this theology is all about, understanding God and understanding what he's done for us. But then when you turn over to the second half of the book, really where we're at, chapters 4 through 6, then Paul starts to talk about, okay, now this is how we live this out. This is what it looks like in action to respond to what God has done for us and how he has acted first on our behalf And he's described so wonderfully in the first three chapters. So as we're looking at Ephesians chapter 4 today, we're going to be in uh, starting in verse 17. And I think one thing that we really want to be clear about is that as we look at this theology, what we're understanding is that, you know, theology is not some, biblical theology is not something that's just meant to remain in our minds as a thought or as a belief. Biblical theology, as as it's exercised in our life, really accomplishes its purpose. In other words, it's not, it's not just for us to believe, but it's also for us to live. And one of the things we see about the gospel in, 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 a, in a place like the book of Ephesians is how that this theolo- these theological concepts are not something that just exists somewhere out there disconnected from our lives, but they're made to make a difference in our lives in the moment that we're in, in this life that we live in the here and now. And I think nothing is more central to the effects that the gospel has on us than this idea of freedom. Uh, Galatians 5 even says, it's for freedom that you have been set free by Christ. Galatians 5 verse 1 says this, for freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm therefore and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Now the question though, of course when we 
hit this word freedom, is what exactly is freedom in terms of what Paul's talking about here? What is biblical freedom? What have we been set free from and what are we set free to? Of course, when we think about freedom, we typically think about things like independence, right? Next Sunday is actually 4th of July where we celebrate the freedom of our country and we call it what? Independence Day. But I think as great as political freedom in the world is to celebrate, I think we also have to say that freedom according to the gospel is a little bit different though. Freedom according to the gospel is not so much about independence, it's actually about dependence on God. Biblical freedom, in fact, is built on the belief that we are actually freed from the bondage of ourselves and being independent from God so that we can be dependent upon God. In fact, to use our freedom to love God and to love others. Listen a little later on in that chapter, Galatians 5, what Paul says about what our freedom is to be used for. He tells us that we have been given freedom and, it's not, and so as a result, our freedom is not to be used to indulge the flesh, but our freedom is to be used, actually, to love other people humbly and to serve others humbly, and we're to use our freedom to fulfill the greatest commandment, which Paul tells us and reminds us, is to love your neighbor as yourself. And so, in fact, when it comes to faith in Jesus, that time that we come to faith in Jesus, instead of being called Independence Day, should be called Dependence Day. It is the time where we realize our complete need for dependence upon Jesus. And really, the rest of our lives in faith are all about learning to live what it means, learning to live out what this aspect of biblical freedom is all about. Walking in dependence on God and not independence from Him. Now, I think that's an important distinction to make, and we're going to see this morning as we talk more about and continue into the book of Ephesians, this idea of freedom is behind all of what Paul is saying here in Ephesians chapter 4. And I want us to stay connected to the text uh, today because uh, I would like, I mean, we should do that every, every week, but I know that sometimes when we put the scripture up on the screen, we kind of read it together and then it goes away and then we don't interact with it throughout the service. And so what I'd like to encourage you to do is if you have a Bible, pull out your Bible, open to Ephesians chapter four. If you have a device that has scripture on it, open that up so that you can refer to it because I want you to be able to make connections when I'm talking about specific phrases and words that I'm gonna point out or verses, you can see exactly where that is in context. I think that's so important, especially for a passage like this. It's a long passage, but at the same time, it's very straightforward. It's one of those really, uh, and, and, and I love these from time to time, because you can just, they, they preach themselves, these passages preach themselves, so you can just kind of read them, and I just offer commentary on what, they, on, on, what, on what Paul's already so wonderfully communicating, and that's kind of one of those places here in Ephesians uh, chapter 4. And I want, us to, I want to remind us of this as well, is that what Paul's doing is encouraging us. This is meant to be encouraging, it's meant to be uh, something that builds us up, um, and so uh, I want to remind us of that, that's where Paul's coming from in the background, that because of our freedom, this is what it looks like to walk in freedom. This is what we get to do, rather than this is what we have to do. So Ephesians chapter 4, uh, verses 17, we're going to finish out the chapter through verse 32, and Paul says this, Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, due to the hardness of heart. Now we have, they have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus." To put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, 
and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, having put away false Having put away a falsehood, let each of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin, and do not let the sun go down on your anger, and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion." that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. And be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Now, there's a lot there. We can slow down for, for a minute and kind of read through this. We see, you might see that the emphasis on this or the, the approach that Paul uses is an emphasis of contrast. So in other words, he is presenting to us two different ways of living. One way is the life that we live before Christ or without Christ, and the other is the life that we live in Christ. And the contrast makes it clear that there should be a difference for those of us who are in Christ in terms of the way that we live, that our lives should look different with Jesus and with God the Spirit dwelling within us. Of course, this has been a constant theme already throughout the book of Ephesians, that in Christ changes everything for us, changes our identity, changes who we understand ourselves to be, changes how we understand our hope and our future. And as Paul talks about the Spirit that has been given to us, that God the Spirit dwells in us, the same Spirit who rose Jesus from the dead, if that's actually true, then that should change us. It should make a difference in the way we live, it should make a difference in the way that we look and portray ourselves and speak and all these other things that we engage in in the world. That should make a difference. In fact, he presents to us several contrasts that you can see throughout this. I'm just going to throw a few up on the screen for you to take a look at. But we see that he says the former, quote-unquote, Gentile life, which we're going to explain that here in a minute, versus the present life. The futility of mind versus truth. Uh, being darkened and ignorant versus being taught. Putting off the old versus putting on the new. Deceit versus truth. Corruption versus new creation. Impurity and lust versus righteousness and holiness. And separated from the life of God versus being created to be like God. Now, all of these are contrasts that are present, but the biggest contrast is kind of in the background of this, the difference between walking in, fr in the freedom of Christ versus walking in darkness, death, or corruption. And that's the real distinction that's happening here. And it's the main point that we want to grab onto, that Paul is imploring the Ephesians not to walk back into the way that they used to live, but instead to press forward into the freedom that they have in Christ. Reminds me of a story I heard once. Um, there's a man by the name of Nicholas Kristof, and I don't know if you're familiar with him, but he's become really well known for fighting against uh, sex slavery and, um, and forced prostitution and those kinds of things throughout the world, especially in Southeast Asia. He originally started out as a journalist working for the Washington Post, and as a result of doing one of these stories, he kind of birthed in him this heart to really work to save some of these young women who were being enslaved and abused, uh, especially in the countries in Southeast Asia. And he talks about, and he's done this repeatedly over the years, he's partnered with organizations that actually go into brothels and they break up the brothels and they raid the brothels and free as many of the women as they can. 
And he's been a part of some of those raids, and he'll talk about often this reality that happens. It's really a sad, kind of difficult thing for him to watch, is that when, these women are, when some of these women are offered freedom, they choose actually not to be freed. In other words, they would rather remain in the brothel than go with those who are liberating that brothel and freeing them uh, from, from enslavement. Now, uh, without getting too graphic, I mean, if you think about that and how amazing that is and how difficult that is to process, of course, these women are literally enslaved where they are uh, literally raped every single day of their lives by strangers. That's, their, that's, the, that's, what, that's, that's what their reality is. And yet, even offered an opportunity of freedom, most of them, or not most of them, but at least some of them, decide that they will stay, they would rather stay in this brothel, they'd rather stay in slavery than embrace freedom. And as Christoph has kind of reflected on this, he said, you know, in many cases it seems like it's much more comfortable for them to remain in the thing that they know, even though they know that it is slavery. Because for many of these women, they've either been groomed or brainwashed since they were, in some cases, eight or nine years old in that brothel. And freedom has been so difficult, and freedom is, is a concept that they can't even really understand. And they'd rather remain comfortable in slavery than actually be stretched in to pursue freedom. And I think there's a, certainly a spiritual correlation for that in our own lives. And this is what Paul is getting, getting at with the Ephesians, is look, this is what you've been offered. You've been offered a life that allows you to walk in freedom. Why would you go back to slavery? Why would you go back to the place that you were before? And as we started into this book of Ephesians, this section of the book of Ephesians, I really wanted us to focus on this idea of freedom because in a passage like this, when we read through what we've read through, we see all these commands, imperatives, right? This is the section of imperatives in the book of Ephesians. And our tendency when we read through commands in the Bible, at least I know it's my tendency at times, is to just make a list of all the things that we're supposed to do and all the things that we're not supposed to do. And so we can kind of put them on a checklist and decide, okay, these are the things I'm doing well, these are the things I'm doing not so well, and so I need to change these things and change those things. Now, there is a list here, and this list, I think, exists for a reason, but at the same time, this is not just about a checklist of morality and a checklist of ethical things that we're supposed to do. In fact, this is a contrast between two ways of living. We either walk in freedom of Christ, or we walk according to what Paul would say the Gentiles do, which are those who don't know Jesus. Now, it's been said that whatever we fix our gaze on, whatever grabs our attention is what we become. I think Paul spent the first three chapters fixing our gaze on the reality of what God has done for us in Jesus. And what this allows us to do is to walk into and respond to what God has done. We talked about last week, again, the, the idea, the principle of the imperative before the, or the indicative before the imperative. You don't want to mix those two up, trust me. The indicative before the imperative. Right, the indicative is what God has done, including drawing us into relationship in Christ. And then from that relationship, once, that, once, that, once that's in place, the imperative comes, the commands then come about how we live out the freedom that God has already given us, given us in Christ. And so as we take a closer look about how this is all put together, we see in the first couple of verses, Paul makes an appeal to the Ephesians to live in a different way by talking about how their life used to be before they, before they came to know Christ. And he says, and this is really the first imperative we see in this section, and it's kind of the one that, that directs the rest of the section, but they're no longer to walk as the Gentiles do, which I think is a, a little bit strange for us in our modern context to really understand. Um, first of all, Gentile, the word Gentile is not one we use a lot. And then secondly, what exactly is it that Paul is referring to when he talks about how the Gentiles live? 
Well, this is Paul's way of referring to a life that is characterized by people who don't know God. Right? That's what that word Gentile means. So one thing to know about the immediate audience of, what Paul, of who Paul is writing to is that those particular people at the church of Ephesus were people who would become Christians later on in life. So for many of them, they've only been Christians for a few years, maybe for some of them only a few months. And they've come to Christ, they've come to faith in Christ, maybe at age 30 or 40, maybe at age 20, but for 20, 30, 40 years, they've lived one way their entire lives. And now they're trying to figure out, okay, what does it mean for me to live as a Christian, now only having faith for, you know, a few months or maybe even only a few years? So when Paul says, no longer walk as the Gentiles do, this is fresh in their minds. It's even fresh in their habits. Habitually, they're still kind of living out of that same mentality in a lot of ways because it's the way that they had lived for so long. But Paul calls them, step into freedom. But he addresses then, but he does this by addressing kind of the source and the contrast of what living as someone who doesn't know Jesus looks like versus somebody who does. And first he says that people without Jesus walk in a futility of their minds. Now, futility here means meaninglessness, it means emptiness, it means uselessness, and it has to do with thinking and belief. And so, as Paul would say, there's a lot of thinking, there's a lot of belief out there that in the end holds no meaning, holds no usefulness, and holds no value in terms of the things that really matter to God, in terms of the things that are eternal, in terms of the things that actually bring us hope. That's often how the, world, how the world walks, in the futility of their minds. Secondly, he says that people without Jesus walk in a darkened understanding. Now, darkened is in contrast to the light. And in the ancient world, light was universally understood as a symbol of truth and wisdom. In Scripture, we know that light represents things like life, uh, certainly and specifically when it comes to the presence of God being around us. So where God is, there is light. Jesus himself, of course, is the the embodiment of truth as the light of the world. So so second, people walk in a darkened understanding. Third, he says that people without Jesus walk with hardened hearts. Scripturally speaking, the heart is understood as the seat of the will. It's the place where thoughts, emotions, desires all come from. And it forms why human beings do what we do. Uh, When the Bible talks about our hearts, it explains why we do what we do. It's the central aspect of our will. What we believe, why we believe those things, our emotions, our desires, all those things are bent up in the heart. And in this context, a hardened and calloused heart is a heart that is insensitive and a heart heart that is is, uh, unresponsive to God, a heart that is really not alive to what the Spirit is doing in us. And it's important to point out that When Paul talks about this, he's pointing to a walking, a pattern of life, really a lifestyle. Because I think all of us can be futile sometimes in our thinking, right? Even those of us who are following Jesus faithfully, there are times where we can be futile in our thinking from time to time, right? Um, We don't don't always believe truth or we don't always think truly in every situation. We can also be darkened in our understanding from time to time. We can be and we often are led astray by our own sin which results in us not being able to see things as clearly as we should. Um, We often have hardened hearts that aren't sensitive to the leading of the Holy Spirit in our lives. but, But the difference between those moments that happen and walking those things out and it being a pattern is really what Paul's getting at here. It's not about every once in a while I sin, but it's what happens when I do sin. Does that become a pattern in my life? Am I walking in that? Or do I see it as an opportunity to return to the Lord in repentance and confession. 
to allow that light to be flipped back on so I can see what's really true, to allow it to be an opportunity that teaches me and sharpens me in the truth and understanding of God. And so whatever it may be, we recognize it and we repent. We aren't always perfect, but we can always be repentant. You know, most of us don't walk around in a dark room if we can help it, right? I mean, I think about the only times I've really walked around in a pitch dark room are the times either when the power's been off in the building that I'm in or I can't find the light switch, right? Light switches are for, of course, turning on the light so that we can see. And um, if I have a light switch that works, I'm going to turn it on, I think just like most of us and all of us would. But if I choose not to for whatever reason, and I walk through that room and bang my knee on a piece of furniture, or I trip over uh, a shoe, or I trip over a toy, or step on a Lego that one of my kids left on the ground, right? You know how painful that is? Then it's my own fault, right? Because I failed to turn on the light that was provided for me, that worked perfectly. All I had to do was flip on the light. And so we repent because we have learned that Christ, we have learned Christ, as Paul would say here. We have learned Christ. This is not how we have learned Christ, to walk in this way. Instead, we have learned that Christ brings freedom. And we have been given the light so we don't have to walk in darkness anymore. So when we do sin, the implication here is that although we may have futile hearts, we don't have a futile mind. Because our mind have been, has been changed and transformed, as Paul would say here in Ephesians chapter 4. That we, we know the truth about sin, and we know about our freedom from it. We know the truth about our identity in Christ. And when we do sin, as Christians, we don't have darkened understandings, but instead we have the light of the world whom we are following. When we do sin, as Christians, we don't have calloused hearts. We may have hearts that are hard at times, but we are made alive and indwelled by the Holy Spirit. That is his work to enliven our hearts to respond to God. And because that's true, Paul tells us what we can do about that. We can put off the old self, and we can put on the new self. We put on Christ. Now, I know that if you've been in church for any amount of time, you've heard this phrasing before. Um, and I think it sounds really simple, put off the old self and put on Christ. Um, but I don't know, but, but, but think about how amazing that is for a minute. The fact that we can actually take off the sin nature of ourselves at any given moment in our lives and put on the character of Christ. That is an amazing, amazing thing. It's actually in reach for us to do that at any given moment in our lives. Decide to put off the old self when we recognize it and to put on Christ instead by the power of his spirit. It's not anything we do, but it's what the spirit has done in us that makes it available so that we can live in freedom and put on Christ. It really is an amazing thing, and that's the central action that we're told to do in the midst of this. Yeah, there's all these other things, right? Dealing with anger and speech and the way we handle our money and all these kinds of things. But in the end, this is the central action that leads to it all. Put off the old self and put on Christ. Then Paul goes into this list of kind of looking at these, these actions a little bit closer, these series of actions that make up the rest of the chapter to kind of drill down on what this looks like. What does it actually look like to recognize the difference between the old self and the new self? And he starts with speaking truth. And he says that we speak truth, of course, because we are in Christ. Jesus is the embodiment of truth himself. Uh, Jesus, uh, truth does not exist without Jesus, who is the truth. And so because we're in Christ, it makes sense that we should be people who don't lie. But then he also adds into this, and I think this, is, this should be uh, noted as well, we should see this as well, is that what, these commands that are given to us are actually 
commands that impact those around us, or things that impact those around us as well. So he says not only are we not to lie because Jesus is the truth, but also because lying is not loving our neighbor. When we lie to a person and we misrepresent the truth, we're not acting in a way that has their best interests at heart. And so we break that greatest commandment to love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself when we lie. And truth and love go together. We're told earlier in this chapter last week, we talked about the importance of speaking the truth in love to one another. Truth and love go hand in hand in Scripture, all throughout Scripture. And this, I think this is something that's really important for us to remember, uh, remember because our world is becoming more and more increasingly full of information, and along with that information, more and more lies and half-truths and things that are not actually true. I was reading this article this past week uh, by a guy named Brett McCracken, and he was talking about, well, the article is called The Search Bar as a Spiritual ba- uh, Battleground. And so you can imagine he's talking about what it means for us as Christians to engage online and how that search bar or that you know, kind of rabbit hole that we run down sometimes online can be a spiritual battleground for us. But, he's, uh, but one of the things that really stuck out uh, for me is he talked about, he gave, us, he gave some facts about how much information is actually out there in the internet and how quickly the internet is actually exponentially expanding in terms of the information that's out there. And he said, by, he said that many experts are predicting that by the year 2025, which is just four years away, can you believe that? By the year 2025, I still think of it as like, 50 years away, but 2025 is four years away. Crazy. All right, so he says by the year, many experts say by the year of 2025, 463 exabytes will be created each day online. Now, if you don't know what an exabyte is, I didn't know what it was either, but he explains what an exabyte is. He says five exabytes is equivalent to to all the words ever spoken by human beings since the dawn of time. So that gives you an idea of what an exabyte is. It's a huge, so five exabytes contains all the words spoken by human beings since the beginning of time. And by 2025, 463 exabytes will be created each day online. What that means is that every 15 minutes, the amount of data that is being put out online by the year 2025 is gonna be equivalent to every word ever spoken by a human being since the beginning of human history. Just amazing. It, it, I mean, I don't even know how to process that. It gives me a headache just to think about it. It's so big. But the point is this. In a time where there is so much information flying around out there, we've seen this. Truth has suffered the consequences. As Christians, we need to be even more diligent than ever about what we consider to be truth and what we call a lie. We are told here that we need to speak truth not, not just because of our relationship with Jesus, although it starts there, but also telling the truth affects our neighbors. It affects our relationships, it affects our communities, it affects our churches. And the problem with this, of course, is that anyone can create a YouTube, a channel, or a social media account and spread lies and half-truths faster and further than they ever have been before. And so many times we just kind of consume that without questioning whether or not it is actually true. Truth matters. Inherent in this is also the importance of church community and helping us to understand truth. Last week we talked about how Paul mentioned, uh, or how Paul paints this picture of how interconnected we are as the church. We're interconnected as the body, we're interconnected as people who rely on one another, and we're interconnected as people who tell the truth to one another, who speak the truth in love, and who live life together. And I think unfortunately for too many people, our online reliance and our online existence has caused us to rely on online content in so many different ways, 
And believe me, I mean, I, I'm, I'm as guilty as anybody in terms of technology goes. I listen to podcasts. I do all my shopping online. Like everything, I'm relying everything almost, uh, I rely almost everything uh, that I do online in some way or another. But when it comes to spiritual things and when it comes to, to biblical community, uh, online is not a substitute for biblical community. Online engagement and online uh, consuming of podcasts and even streaming services is not a substitute for real biblical in-person community. Brett McCracken says this in the article. He says, in quarantine, Christians have been driven yet farther away into a fully online existence, drinking from the often toxic well of internet discourse in ways that poison their souls. Largely devoid of meaningful immersion in Christian formative practices, which Christian formative practices would be things like what we're doing right now, gathering for worship, singing together, hearing the Word, talking about the Word together, meeting together in community groups, encouraging one another, praying together, uh, reading Scripture together, serving one another. I mean, these are all Christian formative practices, praying together, right? So without those things, Christians are instead being formed in whatever online echo chamber they call home. And so online is becoming, for some people, more and more a substitute for engaging in church community. When church community has been given to us by God so that the Spirit works through this to sharpen our understanding, so that we see more of the light, we're not darkened in our understanding, and to sharpen our understanding of what truth really is, so that we can speak truth in love to one another and encourage one another towards the blessing of being free. Now, it's the way the Spirit wants to work in the church. And I would say this, this is meant to encourage us again. This is meant as presented to us as a gift for us to choose whether to receive or not the blessing of what God has done. And because you can't replace church community by listening to podcasts or even just watching your favorite worship service online, there is no substitute for being together with people who know you, with pastors and teachers. It's great to listen to pastors and teachers who are great pastors and teachers, but if you don't combine that with pastors and teachers and other people in your life who actually know you and can be connected with you in community, then you're missing a huge piece of what it means to be the church. You're missing a huge blessing, what God has given you, and God wants you to actually step into as a Christian. And this is why Paul focuses us on telling the truth to each other, which can't happen, of course, if you're only each other or you're only one another is a podcast. The next imperative on Paul's list is also a relational command. He says, be angry and do not sin. Now, I think we have to do a really good job of interpreting this verse because at times, this can be that verse where people uh, use to kind of justify, where people might use to justify being angry. In other words, they interpret this as saying, I can be angry, I just have to make sure that I don't sin in that anger. And technically, that is true. That is what Paul's saying, right? It's not a sin to be angry. Certainly not a sin to be angry about the right things. But let me just put the, this out there at the same time. Most of the time, the anger that you experience, the anger that I experience is not righteous anger. Can I say that? Is that too controversial to say? <laughs> Most of the time, the anger that you experience and feel and express is not righteous anger. And as much as we like to qualify it as righteous indignation, most of the time it's selfish indignation, if we're honest about it. And you see it really in the warning here. Paul's not just saying, hey, I'm giving you permission to be angry. Just make sure that you don't sin about it. No, there's a warning that comes after this. First of all, it's in a context of warnings. Secondly, he says the result of giving in to anger is giving in an opportunity or a foothold for the devil. Now, I don't know about you, that sounds pretty dangerous. That sounds like a pretty strong warning. 
I think this can be interpreted a lot of ways, but if we think about it, how does anger give an opportunity or a foothold for the devil? Well, certainly in relationships or communities. I mean, how many times have you said something to somebody that you love out of anger that you didn't really mean, but you said it because you were angry, and it really hurt them? How many times, um, how many times have, have we seen anger in community divide? For how many of us is it a constant thing to where we might even say it's a pattern that we actually walk in anger? I think this is where we really have to pay attention because anger um, can give an opportunity for the devil in our relationships. Remember that he wants to steal, to kill, and to destroy. That's what Jesus told us. So for how many people has a, relation, has a joy of a relationship been stolen because of anger? How many relationships are killed or destroyed because of anger? Not only that, but how many people are eaten up by their own anger? And as a result, the joy in life is stolen from them because they just walk around as angry people all the time. The real danger in this is that anger is one of those self-justifying emotions that we experience. I mean, think about it. When we're angry, we rarely think about how unjustified our anger is in the moment, right? Have you ever had that? <laughs> you ever experienced that, right? You're angry about something. You're really angry about something, and you're just thinking to yourself, my anger is so unjustified right now, right? We rarely think about that. And in fact, if somebody comes along and says to you, hey, I know you're angry about this, but you're really overreacting and your anger is unjustified, what does that do to us most of the time? It makes us even more angry, right? Which is evidence of the fact that our reaction, that our anger is probably actually unjustified. And since anger is usually a selfish emotion, it's, it's usually expressed in terms of the world is not the way that I want it to be, and so I'm going to get angry about it. Since anger is a selfish emotion, we have to really be aware of this, that anger has been referred to as the Trojan horse for Satan's attacks. We often let it in as a welcome reaction, then we justify it, and then once we're at home with anger, it leads to all kinds of other sins that destroy everything around us. And I think, again, as believers, as we're reminded how interconnected we are, anger can feed these kinds of things within a community. Anger feeds anger within a community. Anger feeds anger within a nation. We've seen that a lot recently over the past year in our own country. Everyone seems angry, right? Many of you have actually referred to this time in, in American history as the age of outrage, because everybody's so angry. I mean, what a time to be alive, huh? Right? There's the Industrial Revolution, there's a the baby boom, information age. We get to live in the age of outrage. Isn't that fantastic, right? And look, none of us are immune from being affected by this, we all have justification for why we feel like we should be outraged, even as Christians who should really know better. And yet many times within the church, we get just as angry and outraged as the rest of the world. And even though we feel angry and outraged, even though there are things that will set us off, right? That's just part of who we are and part of how we respond. We are told not to walk in those things. Let me be clear. There's plenty to be angry about in our world. There always has been, right? Lies, injustice, poverty, racism, abuse, but we need to be careful about why we are angry and how we really get angry and how we express that. That's why Paul says, basically, don't let the sun go down on your anger. In other words, don't go to sleep angry. If you've heard that phrase before, it kind of comes right here from Ephesians chapter 4. Don't go to sleep angry. Keep short accounts with your anger and the bitterness that can rise up because it can grow quickly into a home for a foothold for Satan to do a bunch of destructive stuff. So speaking then of sins against nature, Paul tell our, our neighbor, <laughs> nature, sins against our neighbor, Paul tells us that we should also not steal. On the service level, I guess stealing may not seem like 
that big of an issue for most of us, really not surprising to see on a list of sins. Right? It's, it's against the law to steal, and I think most people, whether they are reading the Bible or not, would say that stealing is a bad thing, especially if you're a victim of theft. But I think one thing we want to see here is that Paul brings this up for a couple reasons, likely because the Ephesians who were, still, who were in the church there had grown up uh, with a background of being thieves, of stealing. Um, we've mentioned before, but in the ancient world, there was a huge disparity between the haves and the have-nots, between the people who were rich and the people who were just dirt poor. And so in a lot of cases, those who were poor believed that they had to steal in order to survive. And so that became a, a common practice for them in order to feel like they could provide for themselves and their family. And so Paul tells them, instead of stealing now, because you are in Christ, because this is what God has done for you, you're to, to rely on God to provide and also for the church community to provide for your needs. You may be poor. You may be at a place where you don't know what you're going to be able to eat that day or how you're going to be able to feed your family. But instead of stealing now, instead rely on God to provide and rely on the church community to provide for your needs. I think it's also important to see that stealing is not limited in this case to just taking something that is not yours. Stealing would also have to do with things like fraud, have to do with things like price gouging and ripping people off. It has to do with the selfish practice of manipulating markets and products and services to make yourself rich at the expense of bankrupting those who are poor. And here the ethic behind stealing and ripping people off and getting rich off of other people who are poor is all lumped together. But behind it all, is this call to trust God and to trust uh, and to look out for our neighbor by providing and helping to provide for his basic needs? And instead, what Paul says here is something kind of remarkable, is that we are told to make money so that we can provide for the well-being of all people. Yes, we can provide for ourselves and provide for our families, but we're to work hard so that we have extra and that we don't spend all of our money so that we have a certain percentage that is dedicated to caring for those who have less than what we have. This is the practice of the freedom in Christ. It's a whole different relationship that we have with money and possessions that's laid out for us here. It's not the core attitude here is to work to benefit all people, not just to buy comfort or luxury for ourselves. Beyond that, though, notice how this command not to steal is also d- designed and, and, call, and calls us out to help, uh, to uh, join with a command, I should say, to help provide for those who are in need. It goes to a deeper understanding of redefining our relationship with possessions. And finally, Paul finishes his list with a focus on how we use our speech and the words that we say. You know, the series that we went through before the book of Ephesians, we were in the book of James. And James gives one of the, uh, probably the best descriptions of the power of words, the power of the tongue. And he talks about words actually being like a spark that can light up an entire and burn up an entire forest. And that's what words, and that's in a lot of ways what words can become. Words have power to them. We experience this. We know this from our daily lives. And of course, the Bible backs this idea up that words can build up, but words can also do huge amounts of damage. They can damage people, they can damage relationships, they can damage communities. And Paul is warning us against this type of speech that he says is corrupting speech. It's the speech that destroys. Literally, it is the speech that means it means to rot away at something. That words and the way that we choose to use our speech can rot away relationships and communities. And it's the opposite of words being used in a way that can build up, encourage, and give grace. Now, in all this, of course, After spending all this time talking about behaviors and all the rest, Paul uses this phrase. He talks about in all these things, we should not grieve the Holy Spirit 
by whom we are sealed. And what Paul is doing is being very careful to draw us back to the fact that, look, these are things, this is not a checklist of ethical do's and don'ts. These are not just merely things that we should either choose to believe or not. This is actually a relational call to obedience. The Holy Spirit, who is the one who has enlivened us and given us the ability to put off the old self and to put on Christ, that is his work in us. And so it's a relational accountability and a relational obedience to the Spirit who is in us doing this, reproducing and producing the character of Christ in us if we, as we put on Christ. And then as a final encouragement in terms of how to respond, Paul offers one last summary contrast. The contrast between, again, the old self and the new self. The old self is characterized by bitterness, by wrath, by anger, by clamor, which is outcry, outrage, and by slander. And he tells us to put those things away and instead to put on the new self, which is marked by kindness, tenderheartedness, forgiveness, and not just forgiveness, but forgiveness in the way that God in Christ forgave you, which is a huge standard, obviously, but it's being sacrificial, loving people, and forgiving people even when they haven't asked for forgiveness, and even when it costs us something to forgive them. Which all brings us back to this place that we started this whole discussion off with, dependence on God for freedom. The more you depend on God, the more free you will be. The more you trust the grace of God in Jesus instead of your self-righteousness, the more free you will be. The more you depend on the power of the Holy Spirit, whether than your, rather than your own futility, the more free you will be. The more you look to God for your fulfillment rather than trying to provide for your own fulfillment in the idols and the things of this world, the more free you will be. This passage is intended, again, to be a strong encouragement to take up the freedom that is yours already in Christ, to put on life. This is God's word to us. God gives us his word because he loves us. God gives us his word because he, wants us, uh, because, because he wants us to understand what it means to know truth and to walk in freedom. To not walk around in the darkness, but to walk in light. And so when we are given these words of, of commands, they're not just commands for command's sake. This is how God works. He gives us commands, and if we receive and obey it, it's life-giving grace. If we reject it, it becomes judgment. And the choice is ours to make. It's every person's to make. Stakes really couldn't even be any higher, but it reminds me of what Moses said to the Israelites back in Deuteronomy chapter 11. He says this, See, I am setting before you today a blessing and a curse. The blessing, if you obey the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you today, and the curse, if you do not obey the commandments of the Lord your God. But turn aside from the way that I am commanding you today. Look, when we are choosing whether or not to obey in a place like this. And of course, as we continue throughout the rest of the book of Ephesians, there's going to be more of these imperatives, these commands, that we can either choose to obey or not. I think it's the difference between choosing blessing or choosing judgment, choosing freedom or choosing bondage. It's our choice. And it's no mystery in terms of how this is done because if you are a Christian, God's Spirit in you makes it so that it is within reach. It is within reach for you to respond, to take off the old self, and to put, off, put on the new self who is Jesus. It's simple, but it's not always easy. If you've tried to do this in your life, you know that the old self does not like to die. He doesn't go down easy. We have to constantly fight him, and we will have to constantly fight that for more and more freedom until we see Jesus again. That's just, what it, that's just the nature of this, but it's what we're called to do so that we can keep working out our freedom in Christ. But God wants you and I to work 
or, or to work towards freedom and to walk in freedom because he loves us. And he's done everything that he can to make it possible for us to walk in freedom. And each of us has to decide whether we really want to be free. Because for us, freedom is not independence from God, but it's dependence on God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have given us freedom. And uh, at a time where freedom is such a loaded word right now, as we're thinking about what it means to be free in the world, what it means to be free in other aspects of our lives, uh, we thank you that you clearly lay out for us the fact that you have already won freedom on our behalf. And that the more we draw into depending upon you, the more free we actually become. And Lord, that, 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 uh, that confuses us at times. I think that's difficult maybe for us to understand because that's not our natural inclination. We think about freedom as being able to run and do whatever we want and be fully independent of anything and everything around us. But Father, true freedom is given to us in being able to lay down our lives and pick up the life of Christ. And so I pray, Spirit, that you would continue to do your work in us, to help us to see and identify what is the old self, what is that peace that wants to keep us in bondage, that nature that always tries to fight back to grab hold of our lives and our souls. And Lord, that you would help us to see what it means to put on Christ, to walk in freedom, that we would no longer live as people who don't know Jesus, but we would live as people who do know Jesus. And that these beliefs, these things that we ascribe to, these things that we teach, these things we preach, that we read all the time from your word would become real in us. That theology wouldn't remain just a belief, but it would become a life action that is lived out in our daily lives. And Spirit, we need you so that we can do that. And we know that it's your desire and it's your will to do it. Help us to be obedient to the call to realize that things like obedience and repentance are not burdensome. Things like obedience and repentance, because of your great love for us, because of your grace and mercy, Lord, because of your power in us, are the keys to walking in freedom. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. In just a moment, we'll rejoin our pastor for today's closing thoughts. But first, we wanted to thank you for tuning in. North Bible Church is located in Scottsdale, Arizona, and exists to equip all generations to love God, love one another, and love the world. For more information about North, please visit our website at northbiblechurch.com. Now, some closing thoughts from our pastor. I came here with nothing but all that you have given me. He's given us so much because he loves us and because he's given us the opportunity to walk and to live in a way that reconciles us with him, a way that allows us to walk in communion with him, in a way that gives us freedom. So may you embrace that this week as we go out. Um, we have, uh, uh, Kathy's our prayer partner for today, so if you have anything that you would need, uh, that you need prayer for, she's there to pray with you. We encourage you. Um, we also have an opportunity for you to submit prayer requests on our prayer cards that are back there on the table as you leave here this morning. If you want to fill out any prayer requests, we pray over those things as a, as a team, as a, prayer, as a staff team, as a prayer team, and as an elder team. So it gets three different touches with different teams that are praying for those things every week. And so if you'll fill out those cards, drop it in the offering stands as you leave this morning. We'll make sure that gets to the right person and the right people so we can get those prayer requests out and we can join you in partnering with you in prayer. 
We all have a great week. Uh, enjoy the week, and uh, we'll see you again uh, next week. Thanks. Thank you for joining us for this week's message. North Bible Church is located in Scottsdale, Arizona, and exists to equip all generations to love God, love one another, and love the world. For more information about North, please visit our website at northbiblechurch.com.